Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And this month we have a very special guest. I will tell you about him in just a moment. First of all, though, I must tell you about our new subscription offer because it's important for us and a great deal for you. In our 90th anniversary year, yes, Motorsport Magazine is 90 years old this year, when you subscribe, you will get the Racing Through Time Classic Racing Cars DVD box set, and that's worth £39.99. That's the Racing Through Time Classic Racing Cars DVD box set. So if you subscribe, you get one of those. You also save up to 50% on the magazine's cover price, and you can choose between print, digital, or bundle. And that, that of course, includes both of those and full access to our online archive. And if you haven't been to our Motorsport Magazine online archive yet, I really recommend you do, because right there is 90 years worth of our magazine. Good. Hope you enjoy that. Anyway, with us today in London on a beautiful sunny day is Perry McCarthy. Welcome, Perry McCarthy. Now, for those of you who don't know, and I can't imagine there are many of you, Perry uh, came up through Formula Ford, Formula 3, Formula 3000, and into Grand Prix racing with a team called Andrea Moda. You may not have heard of them, but anyway, it didn't last very long, as Perry will tell us later. Also, of course, Perry was um, Stig on the Top Gear show, probably the most popular television show on the planet at the moment. But anyway, uh, he was the Stig, and now, of course, he can tell us all about it. Um, so Perry, let, let's start with um, the early career. You didn't start in karting. No, I didn't even follow motor racing. I was at college and I was studying law and economics and art and also physics. Um, so I had no interest in motorsport whatsoever. But I was never very good at football and cricket and rugby and stuff like that. But when I got my first car, I, I found that um, I... I don't know, it kind of clicked. Um, I was able to do some things in the car, which um, the Essex police chatted to me about a number <laughs> of times. Um, and uh, it, it all kind of got together and then word spread around about uh, some of my antics. And there was a, a very dear fellow called Les Ager, uh, who was an instructor at Brands Hatch Racing. And he actually came out and found me and got me and took me to the track. And that was it. Once I got out of the track after the Brands Hatch initial trial, which I was found guilty, um, I didn't decided, right, I want to be a racing driver, and even more than that, I want to be a Formula One racing driver. So, um, yeah, my, my fate was sealed there and then. The, the passion took hold, and um, the, the on switch was firmly down. What was it, when you actually got out there on the track in Formula Four, because in those days, Formula Four was extremely competitive, a lot of, lot of other wild young guys. Um, did you think, yeah, this, you know, this is it, I can do this? Or did you think, my God, I didn't quite, you know, I thought it was easier than this? It took me a while to get out there. Uh, I actually went to a bunch of races to just watch them. And funny enough, including a World Championship Group C race. And this is going to sound, you know, big-headed or stupid or naive or whatever, but I was looking at some of these guys thinking, wow, you're great, but I, honest to God, believe I could do this. You know, I really do. So, but I had no money. So, unfortunately, the story starts a little bit earlier than stepping into a Formula Ford. I went to work on North Sea oil rigs for two years. So I was still studying. So two, three weeks on the rig, come back, week of intensive study, two, three weeks on the rig. But it was a way to get the money together. So that after two years, it was only then that I actually kicked off. And I came in with Formula Ford and I... Uh, thought, okay, I need a Van Diemen car because there's a bloke called Ayrton Senna de Silva and he didn't seem too bad. So I thought, yeah, it must be a good car. Um, Not realising I was looking at the best driver who's ever lived. And um, so that's how we kicked off. And I came straight into Formula Ford with no karting background. So, yeah, I was directly against people who had been around the block quite a bit. It must have been a much sort of steeper learning curve because so many people, uh, so many young drivers have, you know, a family member who's into it, who knows about it, or a brother who's been doing it. Um, and, you, and you didn't really sort of have that kind of sport or knowledge foundation, I guess. Yeah, it, it, was, 
it was certainly very different for me that there was, you know, nobody around, no family members, as you say, no friends, no contacts, nothing. So it was a question of get out there, hold on, and keep your foot down. Now, immediately, I was very fast, but I didn't know what I was doing. I really did not know what I was doing. Um, you know, in 1982, when I kicked off, I had six races in Formula Ford and set three pole positions. I don't think anybody was worried about me because they knew I was going in the wall at some point or another. I mean, I, they were big accidents. For a while, they called me Perry McCartwheel. You know? I used to be six foot three. <laughs> and with your shy and retiring personality, it must have taken you a while to get to, get to know people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was about a race. <laughs> but, the, but the intent was there. Um, and probably, there's an old expression, isn't there? It's called paralysis by analysis. If somebody's looking at something for too long and they, you weigh up the odds on something, mm. then you'll probably never get to do something. Mm. I was too stupid to actually understand. I did not stand a chance. So it was just a question of going, I believe I can do this. And you get behind the car and just go, wow, this is great. If I can learn to stay on the black bit, it's going to be even more fun. But I, you've got to, if you're on your own, you've got to think, okay, crikey, I, I did do that. Maybe I can do it again. And maybe there's something to build on and keep going. So, you know, you've got to be your own motivator, really. And, but the behind the scenes... You know, there was a lot more time spent walking around industrial estates, knocking on doors, chatting up a secretary to get to see the director of the company to convince them that their company has been long, really <laughs> lucky to survive this long without sponsoring me and all the benefits that come with it in Formula Ford. But bit by bit, I managed to chip away. I blew my oil rig money in all the crashes in the first six races. So it was a question of trying to find people to chip in and help. And suddenly I found a way just the following year, stay on the black bit a bit more and uh, won the championship. Yeah. As I said, when I first met you in 1983. You say you've been studying art and law. So I don't know if you're going to paint judges or courtrooms or something. <laughs> but the, um, but you, you, you turned up in the Motoring News office with a huge box of Lee Cooper, anoraks, jeans, jackets, all sorts of stuff, which you, you'd got, I mean, that was early 83. You'd got a sponsorship deal then, which was, you were already unlike any other driver. I mean, yeah, we chat to them in the paddock and things, but you were right in our faces. You were banging into the office, bringing stuff, and and, and you know, there was it was quite a different approach from comparing yeah. some of your peers. It was, you know, th there wasn't just trial and error out on the track. I mean, there was trial and error in life because I was like 20 years old, and you know, just driving to an industrial estate that I thought, wow, there's got to be some money here. These people, <laughs> nice offices, mean a successful company, means they can sponsor me. That was the logic. All I had to do was get into them. But I also recognised from a very early age that anybody's going to sponsor you, really, you know, they've got to have something back from it. Um, so some kind of you know, promotion or some kind of mention or some kind of photographs or radio. And so I just thought, right, well, you know, I need some coverage. And so do anybody who's backing me. And I need to show that by being associated with my activities and adventures, that there was the chance of a promotion instead of just the promise of it. So I could take in that history. And yeah, when I come over to you guys, I'd like to deal in with Lee Cooper. And they were kind enough to uh, give me a lot of um, uh, clothing, which I could use as you know, promotional gift which advertised Lee Cooper, which gave me a reason sure. to speak to a lot of people who had a lot of experience in the industry. And I think, you know, bit by bit, people recognised that I was on my own, um, but trying to do the best I could. Full up with mistakes, I might add. I mean, crikey, I look back at some of the stunts I pulled now, and I have a crack up laughing, and I'm on the verge of tears thinking, what an idiot, you know? But you just, you just keep punching. Well, the thing was, the thing was that uh, uh, you say it was a bit chaotic and, and you made lots of mistakes, but actually, you know, you won the championship, you went up into Formula 3, mm. you went to 3000, you went to Formula 1. I mean, we'll come to all that later, but so the driving part was going really well. How did you make the step into Formula 3, which was a lot more money and a lot more professional and you can't go around smashing them up all the time? Unfortunately, we missed out a fairly significant event, which was um, coming into 1984, having to stay in Formula Ford uh, because of sponsorship. Yeah, of course, I was absolutely driven. I mean, I was, my, my teeth were around a bit of wood. I was absolutely driven to get into Formula 3. I did not want to stay in Formula Ford. There was no interest for me. Next step, take these guys on. I'm going to Formula 1. 
That's all there was to it in my life. Every single thing was about finding the money, any opportunity, get the drive and go forward. But I stalled out in Formula Ford. So we went into the 84 championship and unfortunately I had a pretty big accident uh, at the Alton Park round and the car took off and barrel rolled and it was a, it was a, you know, it was a good smash. That, that crash at Alton Park was so big they actually stopped the race at Silverstone. That's, uh, <laughs> but that put me out for a year. You know? <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually, I'd, in those days you used to have reasonably long lunch breaks and I'd nip down to the road to the Red Lion in Little Budworth and I was just walking back and we heard the engine start and then they sort of, within two minutes, they stopped again. It was because, because the, you know, the, you'd, you'd brought the red flags out. So yeah, thank, thank you, because it meant I didn't miss the start of the race. Or, actually, or didn't miss I, much of the race. Actually, I, from memory, I actually landed in the, uh, the car park. The, the red the, line. Uh, you went far off, yeah. <laughs> they were kind of come out with a pint of lager and a couple of ciggies. Do you want to mention that it was Marussia F1 boss John Boo that tipped you into that role? You yeah, I think that? I will, actually. Johnny, you broke my back. You never said thank you for it, you know. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, but you typical... McCarthy, okay, you get over that, you get back in the car, and uh, can, we let, can we move it forward a bit to Formula 3, because there's a lot to talk about today, and, of course, we've had a terrific number of questions from our readers. Ah, okay, well, sure, I mean, the, again, the, the limiting factor with an awful lot of drivers, as we terribly well know, is finance, mm. you know, that NASA have got a great expression, uh, you know, uh, no bucks, no buck Rogers. And I kind of changed that over to no Sterling, no Sterling Moss. Because you've got to have the sponsorship. Formula 3, even back then, was phenomenally expensive. However, I had found a company that had shown an interest, gave me, uh, given me a little bit of money in Formula Ford. Lovely, lovely people who then made the incredible jump to sponsor me big time for Formula 3. So that yeah, was yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was with Julian Bailey most of the weekend before we got the deal. And Julian said, if I get the deal, he's going to eat his crash helmet. <laughs> so I phoned him on Monday. I said, do you want jam or mustard with that? <laughs> you know? So that was, the, that was the start. So I was able to join Magic Motorsport. Yeah, we had a good car in the Reynard. Yeah. Uh, we had the Volkswagen engines. And very soon, things worked terribly well for me. I was on front row, I think, second or third race, front row, fourth race. Then, unfortunately, a really bad leg injury from not crashing, nerve damage. I lost all use of my right foot, and that put me out for an awful lot of the season. When I came back, it wasn't working properly, and then managed to get out the front again toward the end of the year. So it was disruptive, but I'd made a point and hopefully garnered a good amount of interest, and, and people were generally helping. And by then, I was actually already on the radar for Formula One. <laughs> not least of which because I wouldn't stop phoning them up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They said, you're good, aren't you? Yes, you've told us this for the past five months. <laughs> was, there, was there ever a moment, Perry, where you thought, you know what, I, I'm going to quit this, I'm going to get a proper job, I, I can't go on like this or not? Did you ever occur to you or not? There were some really bad moments, um, but, you know, the character forming, but what I did always think back to was when I was, and this is not moaning, it's just statement of fact is that when I was working 12 to 16 hours a day, every day of the week, on an oil rig in the North Sea, um, that, was, that was tough. And yeah. there's a lot of people still out there doing yeah, that yeah. kind of job. So that was all a means to an end. Sure. And whatever I was fighting against was my choice. Nobody sure. was holding a gun to my head. Sure. It was tough. There was no question about it. And I was saying earlier on that sometimes when you do do something good, you have to desperately hold on to that, whether it be in motorsport or anything in life. Because there are so many bad times, you've got to remember, yeah, yeah, you can do this, you know? And if you believe in something and really keep pushing for it, then, crikey, at least it's going to be one hell of a ride. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it still is, Barry, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we ought to try and move it forward because we, I want to bring in a lot of our readers, but, you know, by... You did, you, okay, you went to 3000, Formula 3000, another big... Formula 3000 is amazing. There's a lot of people out there who won't even remember it, you know? I mean, yeah, it was the but level it was great racing. Just below Formula 1. We used to race all over Europe, there was nobody there. It's incredible. <laughs> in, in, Formula, in Formula 1, all the spectators know the drivers' names. In Formula 3000, we used to know the spectators' names. <laughs> so so it, was doubly, it was doubly remarkable, really, that you got someone to pay for that, wasn't it? Well, I didn't. Is that, you know, I, uh, we... I'd, I'd done pretty well in Formula 3 and I ended up with a lot of sponsorship which meant I actually earned a lot of money 
I really did as a Formula 3 driver. I was probably the world's highest ever paid Formula 3 driver, which kind of suited me and my aspirations. It was fine. So I put together a couple of property deals and they went terribly well. So suddenly I was sitting on meaningful equity in the family home. Well, then, unfortunately, we had no sponsorship for Formula 3000. So we basically signed the house against the Formula 3000 drive. I always remember driving for Rao. I'd hit a chicane in Germany, taken off, smashed the car to pieces. And I was still in the car when Alan Howe got to me. And they'd got the crash on me off. And he's saying, are you OK? And I said, Alan. So he said, what's that? I said, I've just crashed the dining room. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but, but, but that's the thing. It's no good standing on the side barking. I've got no money. I can't yeah, do yeah. it. I could have been a race driver. You go out there, and if you fail, you go down trying. Mm. If you've made some money, you put it in. It depends how much you believe in yourself. Absolutely. But do you see these days, obviously, a lot of people in, uh, towards the mi- from the middle to the back of the Formula Runga are paying for their drives? Sure. Uh, you know, we had, there was a whole bunch of pay drivers back in 92. Um, but... You know, there were definitely some characters back there, I tell you that. Yeah. But it's, it just goes to show, you know, what the economy is like. Even though we obviously are not keen, you know, loving Formula One and loving our sport, we're not keen on the turn pay driver and what it entails. Sure. But really and truly, goodness, I, I think there's maybe only one or two drivers out there that aren't absolute top-notch anyway, even though they have to come along with a huge amount of money. Mm. Most of these guys are fantastic drivers. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I, think, I think it's worse now than ever it was. I mean, it was always nutcase money. Yeah. When, I mean, I got into Formula One without taking any sponsorship. Which was but amazing. Of course, there, there, there was a curse to that, of the team that I was actually with. But even back then, you know, the following year, I probably could have gone somewhere if I had had sponsorship to the tune of about $500,000, you know, but I couldn't find that, not even by putting next door's house on the market, <laughs> because mine had already been taken back. I mean, just to add a little bit of context to Perry's Formula 3000 woes, um, before the race at Le Mans in 1989, he phoned me up, and he couldn't afford, he'd got the drive, because I think Roger Cameron at that stage had run out of driver change, so he had to run you, I think, something like that. But anyway, um, he couldn't afford to get down to Le Mans, so he phoned me up and said, can I have a lift? My car wasn't, we already had four in it, so I got a bigger car from a press fleet that shall remain nameless, but might be Renault's. And um, the Renault 25 automatic broke its gearbox on the way down, got stuck in <laughs> limp home mode. So I then, um, I speak French, which Perry doesn't. I, I phoned this, the organisers at Le Mans and said, look, we're gonna be, Perry's going to miss signing on. Can he sign on late? Yes, got dispensation. We found a hire car somewhere. We eventually got to Le Mans, I think it was about 11 o'clock at night, get on for midnight, dropped him off at his hotel. We went to our digs. Next morning, we get to the circuit, practice is just starting. And Perry's standing in the paddock in his overalls, and his car is 10 foot on the, off the ground because the tail lift on the transporter is jammed. And, you know, all the other cars are going out, and his is still sitting, and the French are looking for a crane to, to get it off. So, I mean, he got going eventually. Yeah, well, actually, there, there was a, I'll, I'll continue with that if we've got time, Rob. It's a, there was a further adventure in that. I don't know if you recall, but there was a one-off race that I was offered by Mike Collier at Brands Hatch. Um, in the in Formula 3000, that's right. Yeah. So I've gone out there. Now, remember, I'd only got this because Gregor Foytek was in the hospital after taking Johnny out, Johnny Herbert, where Johnny had those terrible injuries. So, you know, it, inadvertently, it allowed an opportunity for me to jump in. Mike wanted somebody who was just going to bite through the steering wheel and try and get his car up there. So I did. Well, you know, Marco Greco was out there, the Brazilian driver, and Marco has done something really daft. Well, he tried it twice, and... You know, sorry I say it is, but I, I'm not very good with that kind of thing. And so I put him in the wall. So afterward, he, um, he wasn't real happy about this one. And when we got to Lamar, he came up to me and he said, Today I kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I went, great, pick a corner and like, we'll both go in together. So uh, when we got there, as you know, the, the car was now, I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got no practice. I'm in Roger's car. I've got to do something here. We've gone to, we need every lap possible. As you say, the car was stranded on, on the drop down deck of the transport while first practice is going. So I'm thinking, well, this is looking good. We still couldn't get it down. Finally got the crane down. And if you remember, we got out there with a warm-up lap 
one time lap and checkered flag in final qualifying. So I did, literally, that was it. I went around to say, which way do the corners go? Okay, foot down, bite through your tongue, pray to God, and I brought it in 26th on the grid and last, but I'd qualified because there were about 36 of us out yeah. there at yeah, that yeah, time. Yeah. So I'd done that one lap Banzai thing and I'm thinking, oh God, the following morning we went out for warm up. I do remember this actually. And um, I got my head together and was third fastest and thought, wow. okay, right, I can come through the field. Did a really big first lap, was up to about 15th inside half the lap. <laughs> Who do I find? Goal, you know <laughs> so suddenly he started weaving everything else and I thought you don't learn son do you? and I've come down the inside smashed him straight into the wall again <laughs> well the next lap I've come round and he's all these cars in bits up against the wall and he's standing this, he was a big bloke wasn't he he was a very big bloke he was a big bloke yeah. and he's standing on the corner as I'm coming past him I'm using him as a clipping point waving his <laughs> fist at me gonna kill you kill you so I give him a little wave anyway after the race Parked it up, got out of park from a fast, got the crash helmet off because it's easy to snap your neck, isn't it? Like, you know, by just twist it, and suddenly the sky's gone dark, and I've looked up, and it's Marco standing there. Well, I've looked across, and it was, it was Mike Collier, who's one of the only people who's actually bigger than Marco, and, it was, and Mike Collier had run me in that race of Prince. So I've looked across at, at Mike, and uh, he's just shrugged his shoulders and grinned because this had been about the third car of his I'd smashed the pieces <laughs> that year. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to die. And he said, I kill you next time. <laughs> and that's one of the only times when I've ever been pleased to run out of budget. <laughs> oh, good story, Gary. I like it. Good story. Okay. Um, I don't, don't want to have to rush this, but let's move on. Um, how exactly did it come about... <laughs> that you joined the Andrea Moda Grand Prix racing team? They were desperate. <laughs> um, I'd been in the States um, because, I'd, you know, having finished 3,000 and, and there were some real highlights in 3,000 for me, but, you know, we didn't have the budget to test and quite honestly, we didn't have the budget to win. But I'd managed to turn a few things around. People were chatting and behind me and you guys were... Yeah, I never forget how much you know all the British motor yeah, yeah. racing press were helping me and yeah, yeah. pushing me and, and, yeah. and you know willing me on, and it was yeah. a great thing to have friends like that. Yeah. It meant an enormous Absolutely. amount to me. So you didn't feel as if you were totally alone. Yeah. You didn't feel as yeah. if you were a complete idiot. Yeah. If you think that people who know about the sport believe in you, yeah. then you think, okay, I stand a chance. Yeah. But then I got the opportunity to race in the States, and across a couple of years out there, sporadic rides, but. That went terribly well for me. I was polling this thing, the, the Spice Chevy, yeah. against the major works teams. Um, and this was, we, we were setting poles quite a lot and leading everything, but we just didn't last. You know, there was no money for testing yeah. and the thing kept breaking down. But again, you know, Simon and David and Joe and Nigel yeah. and everybody kept my press, my name in the press. Yeah. So suddenly, this new Formula One team entered and they kicked off with Alex Cathy and Enrico Battaglia. Mm. Now, by the second race they hadn't run, they were slightly critical of the team. <laughs> which was, which, which, it was like Disney's last wish, that little lot. You know? Come on, everybody, I've got an idea. Let's go racing. Um, it was just incredible. I'll be the engineer. <laughs> it was a complete mess. And so they'd spoken out against the team. Sassetti unbelievably got annoyed with them and fired both of them before they'd even turned a wheel. So they needed two new idiots to join. And and Sassetti, um, of course, we should say, was the oh, team owner. Yeah, yeah, he was the owner. Italian shoe magnet. Yeah, yeah. Now, I tell you what, I wore a pair of his shoes once, and I swear to <laughs> you, his money doesn't come from shoes, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but um, so they signed me and Roberto Morena, and it was Paddy Sheardown and also Mike Francis and... They had been kind of behind the scenes. It appeared as if they had been quite fan, fans of mine, and they they realised that this wasn't exactly going to be Barbados. You know, it's like it was going to need somebody who would again just not complain, take yeah. the thing to whatever it could do, and just be thankful to be there. That's that's it. So you know, I mean, it was only two years before I nearly joined Tyrrell, to be quite honest. And you know, because Ron Toranak had been pushing me to Ken. And there was an opening there. 
And I sat in front of Ken and I, I took a trick out of Alan Jones's book and I signed a piece of paper and I just said, you put whatever you want above the top, mate. You know, <laughs> that's it. But it was at a time when John had been released from Benetton because of his feet injuries, foot injuries. Um, Jean Alessi couldn't compete in, I think it was Portugal and Belgium. And so they needed somebody for two races and then Ken did go for Johnny. Yeah. And John did, yeah, obviously, well, he's a brilliant driver, you know. Yeah. But that was a chance there. So this was my next chance, and thinking, okay, this looks like a complete mess. But goodness, by then it had taken 10 years plus two years of working on oil rigs to get there. You don't turn around and say, I'm sorry, this is not good enough for me, you know. <laughs> it's like you, you embrace it and you say, yeah. I'll try and make it work from the inside out. Yeah. Never, never managed to do that, actually. <laughs> but hey, um, what was it... What did it feel like? You know, I'm a, I've joined a Grand Prix racing, or didn't it? Maybe it didn't feel like that. It, but actually, it did. It was to you know, I'd been on the phone to Bernie across the weekend, and there were complications with my license because I actually, believe it or not, hadn't done enough racing. Yeah. You know, I'd been around a long time, but there was not enough actual physical time on track to have mm. got the license back then to do it. Yeah. So Bernie was talking about this way to do it, and finally, the license was issued. Um, but then once I arrived at the circuit, there was the elation and everybody's going, pal, you finally got here. Well done. One of the first people at the edge of my, had come down to the garage. What a thoughtful soul. Ken Tyrrell nice. just stood at the front of my garage, looked in with a smile from ear to ear and his arms out going, yes, you're in. And I said, I'd rather have been with you, Ken. But yeah, here we are. So it was just wonderful to have, to have reached there. Yeah, yeah. But then, of course, you know, it it was a matter of time before you began to realise, oh goodness, this is this is not very good at all. Yeah, and not only were we slow, we were actually dangerous. You know. I mean, you had a this is the middle of Eau Rouge that your steering seized on you or something. Yeah, yeah. that was the. Um, I mean, by the time I'd got there, remember I'd done the grand total of about ten or twelve laps during the year. Now, because Brabham were in trouble by the time we got to the Belgian Grand Prix. We now no longer. You didn't needed, have to pre-qualify anymore. Bradman had gone. That's right. So you were straight into qualifying. Yeah. yeah. So we're out there, and I'm thinking, well, look, if it rains, and you know, it's Belgium, um, not being big-headed, but rain had always kind of yeah. worked for me, and I think, you know, I could maybe get this thing on the grid, and coming through on my first lap, I maybe nearly got the thing in a graveyard because <laughs> coming into Eau Rouge. Um, just on the pre-lineup for it, I just noticed the steering resistance was a little bit hard. Now, I don't normally bottle out stuff. I really don't. And this scared me. And I hit the brakes immediately, and I'm here because I did. Because when I went to take the right-hand turn, the steering had actually seized. And what had happened is the downfalls, <laughs> yes, and we did actually even have some downfalls, as an option extra on the Andrea motor, uh, it had actually flexed the steering rack. So, of course, the steering arm couldn't come in, so you couldn't turn the wheel. Now, after braking for just, you know, a small amount of time, I'd managed to take just enough load out for the steering to finally turn. I, I absolutely bounced the left tyres off the tyre wall going up there, brought it back on, then did a small medium speed test down the straight and thought, OK, steering rack. I brought it into the team and I said, um, where's Goofy? Here's <laughs> our engineer. So um, I said, um, I think the steering rack's flexing. He said, yeah, we know. <laughs> oh, I said, how did you know that? You're kidding. He said, uh, we tested it on Roberto's car last week, because Roberto tested it a couple of times. And we found it flexing. So I said, and so you took it off and put it on mine? Yeah. So I don't think they kind of worked it out. The, that wasn't really a brilliant move. I know Sassetti didn't like me, but I mean, you know. <laughs> so that was, that was it. Not good. No. Um, so that... That was it. It crashed right there and then. Yeah. Oh, pardon me. The 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 dream. Uh, now, yeah. You know, I mean, Williams had a slight interest in me um, because Dave Tremaine had been, you know, beating their head in. Yeah. Uh, sorry, from Motoring News to yeah, yeah, yeah. to take me, and a few other people had been as well. Um, but I had a test, and yeah, it was it was totally loaded. Not but not from Frank, but the test team manager didn't want me. He wanted Dave Coulthard, and I thought, why choose that bloke? You know. 10 years younger, bloody quick, good looking and talented. I just couldn't understand it personally. And um, they obviously, you know, as they saw, they wasted their time. What did he go on to achieve? I tell you. All right, Dave. 
What 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 what's interesting about talking to guys like you? Actually, there aren't many, there aren't any guys like you either. No, but anyway, but of your generation is that, you know one of the reasons that that we the press were so behind you was because you were a lot of fun. You were a good guy. You were, we could see you know, and these you know there were characters. You mentioned this ten minutes ago that racing was full of amazing characters, wasn't it? And they used to say things. Nowadays, nobody says anything. No, nobody's too... Well, they do. Actually, no, but I love listening to Kimmy. Uh, Kimmy, you're young, you're good-looking, just won the World Championship for Ferrari. How do you feel? Yeah, we need to do some more while we're at the car and yeah. the team and the engine. Yeah. And you've just got married? Yeah, we see how it goes. <laughs> we'll put her in the wind tunnel next week at some more performance. I don't know, you know. I love listening to Kimmy. He's never surprised about anything. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Actually, Kimmy is a character away from the track. Absolutely. I was with him recently. I said, Kimmy, Kimmy, you don't hear that name every day, do you? He said, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, he's a bit of an exception, isn't he? Yeah. He's great. I All love right. Kimmy. Right. Fantastic. You're a big Lewis fan, aren't you? Massive Lewis fan. Yeah. yeah, why? I think the guy is just an absolute genius. And there's so few of us. Um, <laughs> joking, folks. Um, no, I do think he's a genius. I think that he can just switch it on. He can adapt. His spatial awareness is just incredible. I mean, that race in Bahrain, it was as if he was, you know, outside the cockpit in the air and looking yeah. down for the, the, the absolute best way to place that car and, you know, keep, keep his cool, keep Nico behind him, yeah. you know, when Nico had the tyres for it. And... I, I just think he's just an exceptionally talented driver. I do feel that the poor guy does crucify himself too much on quite a few things. You know, he's obviously very emotional, but he's, he's this bundle of energy, isn't he? He's yeah. just this absolute bundle of talent. Yeah. And he wants it so much. And he strives for perfection. Mm. And, and he, can, he can hurt himself, I think, like this. But goodness, Maybe it's, it's like just... Gazza in football, you know? Yeah, do you know what? I, I honestly see... I just think the guy's great. I really do. I, there are so many absolute superstars out there. But, you know, we all attach ourselves because of different because of different streams for one particular driver. And for me, it's Lewis. And, um, yeah, yeah. You know. For many people, obviously. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. you mean I'm not the only one? <laughs> <laughs> you're unique, but you're not the only one, if you understand me. But you of probably course. don't. Okay. Sure. Uh, Le Mans. You also raced at Le Mans. But you didn't... I mean, crikey, Perry. You did I don't know what it is about your... I mean, you had loads of luck in some ways, but you had no luck in other ways. It's kind of a weird thing. There was just a bunch of bizarre things happening all the time. Um, yeah, I got tagged as the world's unluckiest race driver, and you kind of think, hmm. Now, I guarantee you, there were certain times I made my own bad luck. I mean, I could have won the European Formula 3 Championship, but I sat on the front row of the grid wheel-spinning like an idiot. So whose fault was that? Yeah, mine. Sure. You know? If I'd got it off the line... I probably would have run the race. Yeah. So, you know, there was a or bunch of things. Or crashed into Marco Greco. Or crashed into Marco yeah. Thank God he wasn't in that race. Yeah. But, you know, you, you take your opportunities, you throw the dice, and, you know, you, you hope yeah, yeah. that it works. There were some pieces of bad luck, of course. And then Le Mans was, you know, 99, you know, Audi had come on stream and we'd had the gearbox problems. Um, but it was a... It was... I was so very proud to have been chosen by Audi sure, to represent them uh, in their first year and, uh, you know, to be with the likes of, you know, um, uh, Michele Alberto and yeah. Stefan Johansson and, you know... And a great team, I mean... Yeah, it's, it's yeah. absolutely fantastic. So it was brilliant to be with a well-funded team, but we had these gearbox problems. And then, of course, later on when I was redrafted into the team, there was myself, Mika Salo and uh, Frank Beeler. And we're thinking, OK, right, you know, we can probably take the fight to the um, Bentleys. Um, but unfortunately, on the end, toward the end of um, Frank's second stint, and he started the race, uh, he had the fuel lights come up, and he had the radio message that we need fuel. And um, kind of forgot to come in the pits. So, you know, it's an eight-and-a-half-mile track. <laughs> so, unfortunately, Frankie didn't get back, so neither... <laughs> Mika nor I actually got in the car. Mate of yours now, is he? <laughs> yes. Well, actually, Frank's a lovely guy and he was distraught about his mistake, you know. But um, it was a bit it was a bit annoying. Mika and I were kind of laughing that it's the only time we've ever been paid probably the same rate as Michael Schumacher per lap. 
<laughs> we didn't have to drive, so um, I mean, he didn't he didn't make many mistakes at Le Mans, Frank. I mean, you know, has he what five times he won there with Audi? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. And the one yeah. year he made the big mistake was the year he was with you. Yes. That's right. I mean, yeah, I like to spread the luck and good fortune. <laughs> um, Even Frank Beeler can't cope with Peregrine Garth. I, I bring pain and misery everywhere. So, no, it was, it was just a real shame. And you look up to the sky sometimes and you go, oh, give me a break. Not me again, you know. I'm not asking for help, God, but just leave me alone. <laughs> I remember seeing you in the, in the pits um, in 99, and it was dark, it was night time, and I was going to come and talk to you, but you were, your eyes were on stalks. Okay. You, you walked past me a million miles an hour. You mm -hmm. looked furious. I mean, did you feel at the time it was just an opportunity missed, or what was going through your mind that? Well, 99 was when we had the gearbox problems, when we were in the RHC, the yeah. close-top car. And um, just a quick message to... Uh, Andy Wallace and uh, James Weaver. You see, I can remember the name of a car, R8C. Not necessarily the last half turn of preload I had in 1984 in January the 16th. Those two are maniacs, absolute maniacs. How do they remember all these things? They remember everything. I have a problem remembering what championship I was in, you know? Great people to go racing with, great fun. Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, on the serious side of stuff is the I'm a pretty determined bloke. You know, when I'm there, I'm there to be fastest. That's no question about it. So, you know, then the, 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 the kind of determination takes over and, you know, I'm concentrating. And I think one of the things that motor racing, where I hopefully was good for motor racing and motor racing was good for me, is that I, I have a couple of attributes and one of them is, is a very high level of concentration on whatever I do, you know. Not necessarily always staying on a black bear, but, but that's, so I can get very focused. So if I was rude or dismissive walking toward a car, I, then I'd I do apologise. I didn't even try, because oh, you, okay. you, you didn't look like okay, yeah. you were going to be right in the right frame of mind. No. Yeah, yeah that's, so look, I mean, you guys all know me you know, pretty damn well. Um, I've always enjoyed life, and I love to have a laugh. I really do. Um, but. You know, when I'm around the car and it's time to get in, I'm probably as serious as anybody's going to be. Okay, uh, we have to move on. Uh, you've done so much, and this <laughs> this might possibly be your most famous moment, actually. Stig on Top Gear. I mean, crikey, Perry, I would have thought you were the perfect Stig. And they, well, clearly you were. Um, how did how did this come about? Yeah, it's, it's funny actually, Richard Hammond was always proud about the fact that they took the mouthiest driver in motor racing and found a way to shut him up. I said, don't worry about that sunshine, we found the smallest TV presenter we could get, put you in a jet car, and made you even sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I mean, I'd, all the adventures of coming through, the sponsorship hunting, the holding on, and then the, you know, the half chances and trying to turn them into something in motor racing, and all the... You know, I've, I've had massive wins in motor racing, Rob. Yeah. Massive wins. Yeah. All the friendships, the great times, yeah. no matter what tragedies there have been or the sure. sadness or disappointments, there are always lots of wonderful things to look back on. So they're all encapsulated in my book, Flat Out, Flat Broke, normally 999, published by Haynes, available in a good bookshop near you. Um, Highly recommended. It's going really well. We sold another copy just last month. <laughs> but um, but they, I, I put all this stuff in this book and... And I was fortunate that Haynes knew I'd written it and they said, can we have a look? So they said, look, we want to publish this. And I said, fantastic. So we had this lovely launch party up in the West End at Audi's uh, premises, uh, the, the big showrooms opposite the Ritz there. Loads of friends there. And Jeremy was there from Top Gear. Well, pardon me, Top Gear had been off air for a long time. And he said to me, look, you know, Top Gear's been off air for a long time. We're bringing it back. We've got an idea. And we've got an idea for a character. You're going to be mean, you're going to be moody, you're going to be silent, you're going to be dressed in black, black visor, black ovals, and we're going to call you the Gimp. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, after a few chats, we got that one sorted out and it became the Stig. And of course, Stiggy proved to be incredibly popular. Yeah. So that is something where I've been very fortunate in yeah. my career to have kind of, you know, <laughs> been part of that motoring history part of life sure. from TV anyway the sure. Stiggy because it's you know Top Gear are over 200 countries now yeah, amazing. and Stiggy's 
pretty well known. So, yeah, loads of fun. Uh, it wasn't for me long term because, you know, I was racing for Audi and testing and training. And, yeah. and I didn't really see where it was going to go for me because you did, of course, have to stay quiet. I stayed true to my word about that. Yeah, how, did, how, did you, how did you do that? How I know. It was I mean, really you tough. you of all people, how did you Exactly. Know? Well, he didn't, did he? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I actually did. Um, but I think they fired somebody in the production team. Uh, when they left, they sold the story that it was me yeah. to a newspaper. So then we tried to play that down. Then something else happened, which I won't go into, but I was pretty annoyed about it. And I just felt, you know, I can't really make... Because, you know, you have to keep to your word, not to talk about it, not to use being the stiggy. So I couldn't do anything. So it came time to part company. I mean, I really like Jeremy. He's, he's great. I'm a massive fan of his. I really am. But, you know, why stay there? It was like, you know, my day rate, I wasn't that happy about. So if you're not happy, walk. Don't moan. Sure. So I did. And then that's when they brought in White Sticky. And then it was about three months after that, then um, they, there was the second edition of my book, and we had two or three pages in it about being the stick. But I never said a thing about it while I was the stick and there's so many people on the internet that keep turning around saying I got fired because I released it as the stick in my book the book was written before the stick was out there you know so mum stop writing in about these things for God's sake okay let's take some questions from our readers and listeners and um, let's start with Gareth Holt Gareth wants to know, uh, Perry, we hear a lot about the bad cars you've raced. What's the best car? What was the the best car you ever raced? Uh, Raced or driven? Um, He says driven, actually, yeah. Okay, driven. Um, The Benetton F1. That was mega. Yeah. That was amazing. But even that was, that came toward the end of my fabulous season in Formula One. (laughs) And I was out with some people in London and we'd had quite a few drinks and I was chatting them up about a particular deal and suddenly I got a call from my wife Karen and it was about 11 o'clock at night saying, Perry, where are you? I said, I'm in London. <laughs> <laughs> it was the fumes. <laughs> and uh, she said, Gordon Message has been on the phone. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> they need you in the Bennett and the Silverstone tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. <laughs> so I said, tell Gordon I'll be there. <laughs> so I got back, filled up with coffee, shot to Silverstone. And I was thinking, oh my God, talk about lack of preparation. Now, I wasn't to know because uh, Alex Zanardi had been ill, so they needed a replacement. So I jumped in the car and it was like being strapped to the back of an Exocet because we were testing this active ride suspension stuff. And every other bump, I could feel Carlsberg coming back on me, you know? But, um, but luckily enough, ended up pretty quick. Um, so, but, you know, it, it didn't kick off. But that was certainly the best car I'd ever driven. Fabulous. Must have been very exciting, for, actually. You know, because With a proper Grand Prix team. Yeah. But I knew, you know, all you could do is just try and impress the people you're working with. Sure. And Gordie and everybody were really happy, and I know Pat was, but, um, you know, that was it. You know, Alex, you know, yeah. obviously got better before, of course, poor Alex was so terribly injured yeah. in IndyCar. But, you know, so he resumed his role within Benetton, and, uh, you know, the, the, the half-open door closed again, so... We've answered Joe's question there, uh, as well as Gareth's. So, but Simon Hurd writes in. He wants to know about your encounter with Alan Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is Alan, obviously, uh, everybody knows who Alan Sugar is. Okay. This is, I'd loved, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is, when you don't, I, I was touching on it earlier, when you don't know any better, when you don't know what you're doing, when you've got nobody advising you, nobody looking after you, like if you're determined enough, you make up your own stunts. I mean, I'll, I'll quote Julian Bailey again. He, he always believes that, you know, I, I've got two remarkable abilities, uh, an ability for getting into major trouble and an, an ability for getting back out of it. That's it, as far as he's concerned. Well, I just dreamt up this stunt, Alan Sugar. He was local to me with Amstrad. They're a massively successful company. But how could I get to see him? And I knew there was a big computer show on. Right, if I could get there on opening day, how can I get there on opening day? You need a press pass. Talk to my pals at the Essex Chronicle. I was now their accredited IT journalist, got the press pass, went down there, got in, could see Alan Sugar. He's from these people to those people to those people. And I stalked him. I was like, you know, Stuart Granger in a big game movie. <laughs> I was just waiting for the prey to break loose and I would pounce on him. And then suddenly he did break loose. He was on his own. So I, I went bowling up to him and with 
classic bad timing and exactly the wrong approach. I said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Sugar, have you got a moment? He said, no, I haven't, I'm very busy. And that was it, two days of planning, straight down the window, straight down the drain, you know? So, you know, I should have hit him with a blow dart first next time and interrogated him. But, but these are the things, you dream up these stunts to try and get into people. I'm sorry to extend this, but my own, I know it's rude to have a personal favorite, but I phoned up this company a few months early and they didn't want to know, it was Atari. And they were real big in the 80s computer game. Yeah. And I thought, I need some star quality to this one. So I phoned up again, got through to the managing director's office. She said, who's calling? So I said, hello, it's James Hunt. She said, oh, uh, these James are, yes. <laughs> she says, what's your regarding? I said, um, it's about a young driver. Uh, it's a prodigy of mine, Prem McCarthy. He's very good. Uh, I need to get in to speak to Graham, to speak to him about uh, sponsorship. She said, oh, James, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he'll see you. Everything else anyway, the meeting was arranged. <laughs> so I've rocked up, knocked on the door, come in, gone up to the managing director's office. The secretary's sitting there. And uh, I then explained, of course, that James wasn't feeling well. <laughs> And he got to make the meeting. So uh, she's like heartbroken and disappointed because I'm there because of James. So she said, okay, go through to the office. And as I walked up to this Graham bloke who was the chairman, he's still not looking up from his desk as I'm walking towards him. And as I'm walking towards him, he's, he's looks up at me and he's giving me a big smile. And he's just looked at me and he's giving me this big smile. And he's gone, nice try, son. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so laughing because he absolutely nailed me. And I looked at him and I said, it was worth a go, thanks. <laughs> oh, very good. Like it, I like it, I like it. Okay, um, on we go, on we go. A question from uh, Chris Hall. And he, he wants to know, do the Formula 3 Brat Pack hold reunions? And do you... Uh, ever get to see or get together with any of these guys that we talk about a lot at Motorsport Magazine, obviously. Yeah, well, actually, it's, 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 it's got the term nearly right. We were coined the Rat Pack years ago, and uh, we were all still great friends when we came from Formula 4 to Formula 3 to Formula 3000, all through Formula 1 and everything else. So, yeah, we're all still great friends. Um, so, I mean, I was best man to um, Mark Blundell at his wedding, best man to also Martin Donnelly at his wedding, so it was great. Um, I'm not up very happy with the others. They didn't choose me as best man, but I'm working on them for their next marriages. Um, so, yeah, we get together and uh, we'll often include Marty Brundle to come out. So there's myself, John Herbert, Damon, um, Mark Blundell, Julian Bailey, Martin Donnelly. So that's our central pack. And then Marty Brundle's real close to us. And when the Earl's over, John Dumfries, we'll get John out to play. So we just normally, Derek joined us at Christmas, so we always make sure that we have at least, you know, one Rat Pack reunion every year, uh, which gets messy. We and, should record uh, it, shouldn't we? Yeah. Each year, the older I get, the faster I was with the stories, <laughs> <Yes>. you know. <laughs> As generations go, wasn't bad, was it? Yeah, it was, I think it was quite special, wasn't it? Because in Formula 3, what was it, from that year, we had eight of us going to Formula 1? Um, so... And I think a lot of people knew that it was quite a year when we were out there. Um, but you know, one of the fantastic things about being around those guys is that they were all so driven, all so good. And they, you know, the deal is that they're, they're great friends, but you know, you've got to be faster than them and you've got to beat them. So we all drove each other to be faster and, and learn more and hopefully be you know, more professional about the way we go about it. But great years in Formula 3. For me personally, I preferred stuff when we had even more power. That suited me a lot more. Formula 3000, because I didn't really get to race F1, did I? So Formula 3000 knew was fantastic. And the, the uh, IMSA stuff uh, in the States was great. Great times out there. But yeah, the boys and I, you know, we really keep in contact. And uh, seeing Mark for lunch next week, actually. So. What about Marco Greco? Does he come along? No, no, he, 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 he couldn't make it. <laughs> I always remember when he took Bertram Gasho out, actually, and he's coming into the pits. It was a tar, the tar, tar leaves and some yeah, yeah, it was a yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ, Bertram. He was a character. He used to wind a lot of people up. Yeah. Mark managed to punch him once after a race at Thruxton, and Bertie thought he was going to be okay by leaving his crash helmet on and lift his visor open. So Mark actually took, put a fist together, but just with his fingers poking out, great shot, straight through the visor gap into his eyes. Yeah, he got, he got an endorsement on his license for that. This is why people love NASCAR. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think we need more of this in Formula One, but that's just a personal opinion. <laughs> and more okay. drivers called Billy Bob. <laughs> yes. Um, Steve, Steve W, uh, is, that's all we know him as today, Steve W. He wants, there's a, there's a one word answer to this question, actually. Do you ever talk to Andrea Sassetti? No. Right, good, let's move on. Um, still on the subject of Sassetti, uh, Ivan Carlos Rukesi wants to know, um, is, is there one particular story you could tell about him to explain that whole Andrea Moda uh, farce, really? Or, or have you told it with the Rouge story? Well, I mean, you know, Andrea was a fairly young chap who decided that he wanted to be in Formula One. Um, so, you know, it's, it's too long a story to go into how he came into it, you know, the, the remnants of Colonia and putting the whole mm, thing together. Mm. But, um, but, you know, they, they vastly underestimated what it took. And there, there's all sorts of tales, which are in my book, Flat Out, Flat Broke, normally 9.99. But no, but there's all sorts of tales of how they brought this team together. Um, they were just completely out of depth, yeah. totally. Um, so, yeah, he got the, the bloke got it wrong. He obviously had the passion to be in Formula One. So, from that perspective, I guess that we all appreciate that. But he yeah. was a difficult so-and-so. Couldn't happen today, could it? Just couldn't happen. No, no, not really. No. Okay, uh, coming to 2014 Formula One racing, Ian Miles wants to know what changes would you like to see to make the racing closer? It was pretty close last weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, I think um, Felipe Massa was talking about something similar recently. I, for me personally, I would like to, I'd like to see less downforce um, because they've made great strides. These cars are still operating a lot better than they used to in the slipstream of saying. You have to remember that the car in front is taking the air away a lot of the time and the aerodynamics both across the wings and under the floor rely so much on a clean airflow. So if you're taking that away, you're losing downforce. Lose downforce, you're going to slide so it puts you back a bit. So the cars are operating an awful lot better than they did, but you know they're still not exactly where they could be. So maybe some more mechanical grip from fatter tyres and take some of the downforce away. For me, that's probably about it. We're always going to see some kind of disparity this year because there's been a huge um, change in the you know the, the powertrain regulations and. It's so complicated, it was going to take some people longer to get hold of it than others. We're already seeing Red Bull coming yeah. back. We're seeing Williams being able to start competing. So I imagine the gap that Mercedes currently have as the works team is going to shrink. Yeah. But as far as any changes I would add, I would really want to be looking at, red flag, uh, at yellow flags if somebody goes off in qualifying. I'd really want to look at how that works. Um, just as an example, maybe let's choose a random circuit like Monaco. Um, I'd also really want to be looking at runoff areas on how you can go off on a runoff area and then actually accelerate and keep your place. I think some of those things kind of need to be looked at, but they're more FIA rules and regulation stuff. Do you... Sorry, go on. Would, would you... Uh, if you were sort of at the right age now to be coming to Formula 1, would you be excited about all the sort of hybrid technology and things? Or Yeah, I that? think so. Um, I mean, I know a lot's been said about this, but the noise of the engines is you know it's not like great maybe we will get used to it if you you know if something's around long enough you end up getting used to it but um yeah it's not that sheer violence is it because part of being at a grand prix is the sheer violence of the noise of these cars which you don't hear anywhere else mm. you know so that's sadly missing but um they do have a huge amount of talk though don't they i mean when the when the power comes in it's spectacular yeah they do they do but i mean again once if 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 again you if you were to somehow limit downforce that's going to make the throttle control uh, on power application a lot more difficult for the drivers if they if you're keeping with this talk you know unless you keep changing throttle maps all the time um but you know but it's um but grand prix for me i am hugely excited every time there's a grand prix i'm literally sitting on the edge of the sofa (laughs) when i'm watching this and absolutely living it because I enjoy Grand Prix racing so much but my goodness if I got in a car now and spent three days in Jensen's McLaren around a circuit I know give me all the tyres give me the low fuel give me three days to go out there and I'd get to my best lap assuming my body held together which it wouldn't okay I guarantee you somebody like Jensen to turn up and their first flying lap annihilate me so anybody out there who thinks they can jump into a Grand Prix car 
these guys think at the speed of light. Yeah, yeah. They are programmed for speed yeah. and they would just get in and take your arms and legs off. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. you know? So I don't think there's a lot of hope about me being around the Grand Prix circuits too much. There was, uh, there was quite a good comment on the website the other day and there was quite a few people complaining about modern F1 and things. And uh, this guy came on and said, uh, I, I hope Formula One stays as rubbish as it is now. It's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, I, I'm, I rather agree with that, actually. Uh, can, can, I, can we get, put this one to you from Jonathan Abbott? I, li I like this one. And it, it goes on a bit, but bear with me. He says he was at a Formula 3 race at Thraxton, who wasn't, in the 1980s, in the ground effect era when the entire race was usually a long and boring procession devoid of overtaking. Mm -hmm. Perry had trouble in qualifying and started from the back of the field. I remember he overtook three or four cars on lap one, about the same on lap two, and went straight into the catch fencing in front of me at the chicane on lap three. He's been a hero of mine ever since. <laughs> it's because his father owns the catch fencing company, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Anyway, uh, he also says, uh, he says, if I had a question, <laughs> it would be, in hindsight, <laughs> How many questions with Perry McCarthy begin with in hindsight? <laughs> could, could he have played his cards differently and secured a decent F1 drive or did the dice simply never fall his way? Well, I think you've kind of covered that. I, um, sweet day, like they enjoyed the crash at Truxton. I, I like that. Um, who knows? You know, cracky, I don't know. It's um, yeah. you, 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 you deal with either the hand you're given or, or you try and make a new stack, but sure. that's all you've got, that one chance. Um, as I said before, an awful lot of bad luck, but don't worry, I managed to make an awful lot of my own bad luck as well. So, you know, but it's the, the fire that, the, the, the thing for me, you know, all laughing and joking to one side, is I love this sport. Mm. I, I loved being a racing driver. I loved trying to extract the maximum amount of speed and I loved competition. Mm. I love going against the other boys. So it was absolute passion that drove me through anything that I had to come across to do it. So you've got that burning fire. So if there's a problem in quality and you're starting at the back of the grid, yeah. well, I'm not going to be staying there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, it's here and now. So that I, I look back and think, yeah, sure, there was a bunch of areas where, crikey, Perry, if you'd just not taken that car at that corner... But if I'd had that attitude, I wouldn't have been taking the amount of cars that I had done <laughs> all the time in, in other races. Yeah, but yeah. yes, a balancing act. I bet if you pitch that question to anybody about whatever they do in life, if you look back and say, would you change that? You know, it's, mm. I guess everybody would have a tweak here and there. Mm. Absolutely. We could <coughs> all, yeah. yeah. So you, you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier about, you know, how easy it is to fall off the ladder and you know, you know, you almost fell off with it several times before you finally did. I mean, who were some of the guys? You, you were up against a very, very strong field in Formula Ford in '85. Some really good guys there. Paolo, Paolo Karkaski won. Mm. Karkaski, rather, was one. Very, very good. He very never good. got the brakes. Yeah. John Robinson, who you raced against in junior Formula Ford, he was bloody good. John Robinson was one of the best naturally talented drivers I ever came across. I was going to, because he just, I mean, he did a bit of two litre, I think, afterwards, but just more or less disappeared. He just, you know, jo John wasn't exactly mega at going out there and knocking on doors and trying to find the, the sponsorship, but we're still great friends even today. Uh, I, had a, I had a lot of respect for John. I think that's him in a gunship helicopter outside now in case I say something wrong. Is that not Marco Greco? No, I, I had a lot of respect for John. But, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you've been around every bit as much as I have, Simon, and you've seen that there's been some super drivers. Somebody I, you know, really thought the world of, who I would like to mention, was a driver called Pete Rogers. And Pete was uh, a fabulously talented driver. And it was Damon who actually phoned me early on a Monday morning at home to tell me that, Pete had been killed in an accident at Donington and that was a really sad loss not just as a friend but also a guy who really had a great attitude and, and bags of talent so yeah there's a whole bunch of people and then you see Cracky even inside Formula 1 look at how many really good drivers that were in Formula 3000 that ended up in yeah. pretty bad seats at the back of an F1 grid. You know, not, as bad, not, as, not, not as bad as, Andrew, as, as an Andrea Moda, perhaps. No, sure. But, I mean, but it is all relative. Obviously, you know, we were in that situation and we were a complete yeah. nightmare. But there were a lot of other boys who were, you know, just great drivers yeah. who were in something where they couldn't afford to test, the thing had break down, their thing was dangerous, even though they might be scraping it onto the grid. So they couldn't show what they could do. And unless you reach 
the right place in Formula One in the right year at the right time. You, there's nowhere to get into that next gap. I mean, look at Nico Hulkenberg. Yeah. Now, okay, Nico's earning a good few bob in a really good team. What more has that bloke got to do? <laughs> the guy has been driving his socks yeah. off. He is putting that car, and this is actually, this is something I will say, this is me being profound now, but it's something I absolutely believe in with all my heart. And if there are any young drivers out there listening to this, don't keep making pony excuses. Don't keep turning around and saying, we weren't fast enough this week, and then tweeting about it, and then Facebooking about it, and everything else. If you're not there, don't write about it. Dig down, get on with it. It's no good being good in this game. You've got to be special to be noticed. Yeah. You've got to be doing something that people didn't expect. Yeah. And any other driver I hear says, I'm in F3, but this is my learning year. If I hear that one more time, I'd, I'd, I'd like to kill them. Yeah. You Le know? Yeah. Mind learning year, get out there, and you hold on for dear life like it's your last race, because you're out to impress you guys, yeah. teams, anything possible. So yeah, I'm on a, I, this is a rampage here, but I've earned my right to have this, yeah. you know? I really have, yes, because have. it's, you know, this is not, oh, this is my learning. Mm. How stupid is that? How much money have they got behind them guaranteed yeah. to say this is my learning year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you get one half cock chance, you get in that car and make it work. You know, look at Dean Stoneman. Yeah, you know, that's an amazing like, story, isn't it? After Dean's problems and he comes yeah. back and gets in a car, he shouldn't have been able to do what he did. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad And he gets in and everybody goes, bingo! Yeah. That guy's come back after terrible yeah. serious illness yeah. probably not a lot of testing and make something happen yeah. that's fabulous but going back to Nico Hulkenberg sorry he's the he can't be waving any more look at me flags can he <laughs> you know yeah. when's he going to get the chance I'm really glad you mentioned Dean Stoneman that's the, it's a fantastic example and the guy I mean he's already won a race this year already hasn't he to, to, straight out well done he, won, the first he won, race. won one at the end of last yeah. year as well yeah, so, no, yeah but I mean he's good for you well done it's good um Right, cool, blimey, you take my breath away there. Let's have one. you were better looking, Rob. <laughs> I'm so sorry to disappoint you. Maybe we should have had a drink before the interview. Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> okay, let's take one last question, and uh, it's one I'd like to know the answer to. It comes from uh, uh, Alistair Warren, and he says, you know, you're, you're the guy you love, Lewis Hamilton, yeah. had a whinge the other day about being the poor kid from Stevenage. He was stupid doing that. Sorry, Lewis, but that was, that was dumb. Yeah. And plus the fact, Stevenage isn't exactly Calcutta, is it, you know? <laughs> well, further, furthermore, Ed and Senna came from a very privileged background. He was quite fast and hungry, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just think, yeah, I, this is where, you know, I, as I've established, that there probably isn't a bigger Lewis Hamilton fan than me. But this is why I think Lewis can be really dumb. Yeah. Because I actually don't think he's equipped for this kind of emotional war of words. No. He'll open the door and then, yeah. you know, w wish he hadn't. Yeah. Now, that's talking on his behalf. Well, it's not talking on his behalf. That's a, my own opinion. I think David I don't Purley, think he should open this. Yeah. David mm -hmm. Purley and Nicky Lauder were two men who, who were equipped for a war of words. And there aren't many guys like that. With Nicky, you have to remember, he yeah. speaks very much like this. Everything ends in a question, you know? So it's very difficult no, it to get like a word in Edwards. Sounds like a Kimmy impression. Sorry? Sounds know, like a Kimmy impression. They spend a lot of time together. <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> when are you going to write another book, Perry McCarthy? I don't know. It's, I'm going to launch uh, Flat Out as an e-book shortly. Um, so, you know, it's um, anybody who hasn't read it, if they wish to, they have the chance to download it there. Uh, I'm not really sure there's another book to be written, to be quite honest, Rob. I think that, you know, that they were the stories and yeah. they were the, that, that, that was the story of coming through. Um, I Might make a great film. Well, funny you should say that, because um, I have been contacted about that. Um, so we'll, we'll who see. Would, who would play you? Well, I was You'd play thinking, yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah, I was thinking maybe Woody Allen. Um, yeah, no, it's obviously Tom Cruise. Needs, well, Brad Pitt, I think we're probably the, he's the one that I most look like. Or Yul Brunner. Oh no, he's passed away now, hasn't he? <laughs> no, it's I, you know it's been discussed, but we'll see. But um, I mean, the, the Rush movie was great, and um, yeah. I really enjoyed that. I mean, obviously there was a few bits in that which were made up, but um, but two brilliant characters. And one of the things I know we're probably coming to an end here, aren't we? But one of the things I 
absolutely love about motor racing is is the passion of the people involved yeah. in it and you know we've been talking about drivers but there's so many careers in motor racing where you're talking about the truckie is one of the best truckies that's how you got to f1 the mechanics they fight their way through yeah. the international formula to get there the engine people the aero people yeah. the team managers they all want to be the best yeah. and formula one is a collection of huge determination and a lot of very, very smart people who are very, very talented. And then, of course, you have the drivers. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's all the things I love about Formula One, a complete collection. It's a world in itself, and there's always something going on where... But it's a non-stop fight. And one of the really interesting things that most people don't actually realise is that, you know, we've got all these drivers on the grid, 22... Well, pretty much... You can pretty much bear that, okay, apart from this year, but pretty much normally, 18 are thinking, we're not going to win. Yeah. But still, every day of the week, they're training. Every day of the week, their yeah, team's yeah, working. Nice, every yeah. day of the week, they will not give up for that one spark of hope. Yeah. So the underlying thing about yeah. all this is no matter how bright you are, no matter how logical one is, and no matter how much money is involved in this, the underlying thing one needs in this game is you have to be a completely stupid optimist yes. <laughs> because you have got to believe. Because if you don't believe you can do it, if you don't believe you're good enough, this game's hard enough without you not believing in yourself. Well, we're hearing a lot at this time of the year and especially this week about the psychology behind the English football team who've been told finally to believe in themselves <laughs> and get out there and believe in themselves. I mean, it's a big part of success, isn't it? I don't follow football, so um, it's... But know, it's any sport, you have to yeah. believe it. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, obviously I hope they do well. But the, the motor racing is that there's a, there's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of dreams and ambitions, but again, if you sat down and did the math on this, then you don't stand a chance of making the Formula One. Yeah. I believe there are about three million competition licenses worldwide. And if you look at every stage the one needs to, to go through, yeah totally funded you might as well turn around and go no but those who go out there they believe there's a shining star and they'll learn <laughs> <laughs> i'm joking okay thank you very much perry good thanks fun. for having me guys perry McCarthy, brilliant love thank it you. well done uh okay well thank you everybody for joining us i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did um thank you to ed uh foster our producer and of course our editor damien smith who's here today and uh, Simon Aaron, who's also with us. I should have probably introduced them at the beginning, but I think you do all know them by now. Okay. Anyway, thanks very much for joining us. Do join us again next time. We need you. Thanks. Bye-bye.